Good morning, everybody. Thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of your Sunday service here at Unity of Gaithersburg. It's just a real thrill and a treat and an honor. And I'm tickled pink and coming to you from San Diego, California, and uh, in brothership and sistership with you in this Unity project that we're all engaged in. And this morning we are here to consider a topic I'm calling Realizing Oneness in a Fragmented World. You know, what's at stake is this challenge that we all live with. You know, we, we, we come experientially into the knowing of oneness through our spiritual practice, through our community. It comes to us in our best moments of lucidity and, and insight. And yet, you know, as soon as we pull out of church and get back into traffic, it's gone, right? We go right back into the fragmentation, the conflict, the doubt. And so I'm interested in that. What is that disconnect? Why do we sort of intellectually accept the concept of oneness, but have so much difficulty having our being there consistently? So, you know, I think a lot about the connections between the intersectionality between new thought, unity specifically, and, and Asian philosophy and religion. That's sort of my area. You know, I been a community college uh, philosophy and religion and mythology professor for 30 years. So I kind of live there <laughs> all the time in the, in the great wisdom traditions of the world. And in fact, that's what my Unity Magazine column is about, right? Um, a to Zen. They're, I'm their like world spirituality guy. <laughs> and, and, and so that's what kind of is all coming together in my thinking this morning that I thought you as Unity folks would be uh, interested in, in exploring together with me. So this is a philosophical inquiry into this question. Why is it so difficult to maintain unity consciousness? What's in the way of that? Um, let's start here. In 1950, Albert Einstein received a letter from a distraught father whose, whose son had just died. And this father, for some reason, in his grief, decided, hey, I'm going to write a letter to the world's preeminent physicist down the road there at Princeton. And uh, was it Yale? And, uh, the, you know, he thought it'd be a good idea to write to Albert Einstein for some counsel, for some solace. And uh, remarkably, Einstein wrote back. And we have that letter. It was even later published in the New York Times. And so on February 12th, Einstein wrote back to this father, and here's part of what he said. I want to read this quote to you, and we'll use it as a jumping-off point. Einstein wrote to this grieving father, he said this, A human being is a part of the whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest. A kind of optical illusion of consciousness. This delusion, Einstein continues, is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few persons nearest to us. And then he gives the guy and all of us an assignment. Einstein finishes with this. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison 
by widening the circle of understanding and compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. That's non-duality right there. That's Advaita Vedanta. That's the concept that there is just God, as folks in New Thought describe it. And everything is an emanation of that singularity, including us and all things. And so in Einstein's vernacular, it's pretty, it's pretty good. This, this dream that we keep falling back asleep into, this dream of separateness, is an optical illusion of consciousness. What in Hinduism we would call maya. So what is it? What is this optical illusion of consciousness? In what way do our perceptual and cognitive processes, in a word, our mind, create this persistent optical illusion of consciousness? So there are a lot of voices in the world's wisdom traditions that celebrate the oneness of all energy, matter, and consciousness. We hear that message out of many darshanas or schools of Buddhism, of Hinduism, and elsewhere. Um, so why do we keep falling asleep? That's what's at stake today. Why do we keep falling back into the illusion of separateness? What's causing this pervasive tenacity uh, to refuse to let us go? Well, Buddhism has an answer. And that's what I want to focus on with you this morning for a few minutes. Buddhism has an answer to this question, and it's a really intriguing one, and I want to explore it with you. Um, and, my, and, and, and like much of Buddhist philosophy, it comes to us in the form of a list. In this case, something called the Five Skandhas. S-K-A-N-D-H-A, -A, Skanda. It's a Sanskrit word meaning heap or pile or aggregate or gathering. So it's five gathering points, five centers of phenomena or activity that form us, that, that constitute us. And those five things, those five skandhas, are the reason why we don't experience unity consistently. So what are they? The first skanda, the first um, ag aggregate, is uh, rupa. It's a Sanskrit word, rupa, R-U-P-A. just means form. So the world of forms, most specifically this form, right, our body. So I have a body, you have a body, and here we are in these, in these meat suits, uh, and we live our lives here, and they continue to change. And it's immediately clear when we are born that I am my body, and I am not your body, and you are your body, and you are not. They, this, this fact of being embodied casts us into multiplicity. That's the first step in the erosion of our innate unity consciousness, that we have these bodies. The second skanda is called Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. -A. Vedana, this is, this is our, our perceptions, right? Uh, our senses. I have these two cameras on the front of my face, these two microphones on the side of my head olfactory or scent, taste, and touch. And so these five pieces of equipment, these five sensory apparatus, take in data and all that input goes into my brain, which synthesizes it into a movie called The World, right? Reality. So those are the first two skandhas, body and perception. And, and look how they work together. Um, my body has perceptual tools. 
and those perceptual tools tell me that I have a body. I can hear it. I can feel it. So that's the first two reasons why we're stuck in separateness, form and perception. Now, what's the third one? The third skanda is called Samja, S-A-M-J-N-A. -A. Samja is um, thought, concepts, um, maybe the word mentation. Our, our capacity as homo sapiens to conceptualize everything and then to live continually in those, in those conceptions, in those thoughts, what Eckhart Tolle calls the thought stream. I bet a couple of you know what I'm talking about there. An, um, a new earth and the power of now, right? Eckhart, Eckhart Tolle. I like that phrase, the thought stream. And we're going to do a little meditation later when I wrap up and uh, we'll think about that again. But this is, a, this is the third skanda. So we have a body which has perceptual tools, which, which perceives all of the other embodied forms and takes those perceptions up into the level of, con of conceptual thought. Everything gets a name. Everything gets a category. There is a hierarchy of what's more important and what's less important. And all of that conceptual indoctrination, our worldview, our biases, our acculturated conceptions of things, what matters, what doesn't matter, who matters and who doesn't matter. This is a hornet's nest, isn't it? This third skanda, this samja business, that the thought world that we inhabit is really one step removed from the real world, what philosophers call things in themselves, which I can never get at. I can never get at this, this cup of water. I can only have my perceptions of it. It feels cool to the touch. It feels wet. I can hear it splashing. I have my perceptions of this cup of water, but I can never get at the thing in itself because I can only perceive it and then turn it into a concept and start throwing words around like cup, water, wet, cool. I can talk about qualities, but can I ever get to the essence? So in a sense, we all live in this third skanda of conceptual thought based on our perceptions that come through being an embodied form. Are you with me? So those are the first three skandhas. Again, here's what, just a reminder, here's why we're doing this. We're trying to answer the question, why don't I stay awake to oneness? Well, my body and my perceptions and my mind, my concepts, keep dragging me back into separateness. Don't worry, there's good news at the end. But let's keep going with the five skanas. We got the first three, body, perception, thoughts. What's the fourth one? The fourth skanda is called samskara. S-A-M-S-K-A-R-A, -A -A, samskara. These are a subcategory of thoughts. So we just talked about the thought level, sam, samja, the third skanda. But now we're gonna talk about a subset of those thoughts that have their own kind of essential nature and they are called samskara. What are these thoughts? These are thoughts that contain within them longing, drive, volition, will. These are thoughts that impel you to act. Let's start with something grand. When you see injustice, you are, you are called to work for justice. When you are thirsty, you are called to take a drink. 
When you are hungry, you eat. When you are lonely, you look for a friend, etc. So these are thoughts that have within them drives. And as Krishna said in the Bhagavad Gita, the great Hindu classic, our natures drive us to action. So some of our will and volition is free is freely chosen. I choose to learn how to play guitar and I discipline myself to do it. And some of our wills and volitions are not chosen. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna breathe air. It's just sort of automatic. If you put a plastic bag over my head with a rubber band around my neck, I'm not just gonna lay there and die. I'm gonna rip that bag off my head impelled by my nature to want to continue living. So this is this is the fourth skanda, the the thoughts that compel us to action. Um, that is clearly the source of some conflict between us, isn't it? Because there are limited resources and there's, you know, we're going to be in competition. You ever been in a love triangle? You let, you have, have you ever loved someone that's, that someone else loved and they loved them too? And it's a mess, right? So in some sort of elemental, fundamental way, we are in competition with one another while we are also in another elemental, fundamental way, deeply connected and cooperative with one another. So finally then, the fifth skanda. Again, the first four. Body, perception, thoughts, volition. What's the fifth one? Seems like that those first four kind of cover it, don't they? And they kind of do. The fifth one's of a different order entirely. The fifth one's called vijana. And vijana, this is the level of consciousness in which the previous four skandhas meet and interact. This is kind of head headquarters, but we don't spend much time here, but it's there. This is higher level of awareness, sometimes translated in the tradition as uh, discernment or realization. Vijana, higher knowledge, higher awareness, enlightenment even maybe. And so it, it, this is that field of awareness that is capable of seeing and laying bare and finally becoming liberated from our unenlightened and slavish attachment to the skandhas. Vijana is what makes it possible to awaken from the trap. You know, there's a line in the, one of the Upanishads that says, the mind is indeed our prison, but the mind is also our liberator. And we've all experienced this, haven't we? How our thoughts can be a cage that we cannot escape. Our addictions, our compulsions, our tenacious prejudices, they can, they can ensnare us. And yet it is the very same mechanisms of, of, of cognition, of thought, of new thought, that is the key to setting us free from those old thoughts. Affirmations and negations as we practice in unity, changing our minds. As Buddha taught in the Dhammapada, our life is a product of our thoughts. Our thoughts of yesterday produce our life of today. Our thoughts of today produce our life of tomorrow. Our life is a product of our thoughts. That's the first verse from the classic Buddhist text, the Dhammapada. How new thought, right? So for these five reasons, these five skandhas, our bodies, our perceptions, our thought stream, our wills and drives, and our higher awareness, 
we are seduced into the illusion of separate existence, what Einstein called a kind of optical illusion of consciousness. I'm just fascinated by this. You know, I, what we do in philosophy is we engage in inquiry. And so I'm not presenting Buddhist philosophy as a fait accompli, the answer to everything. I'm not presenting the five skandhas as a new doctrine that we must all sign contractually our names to. This is just another cultural contribution to the same inquiry you and I are constantly in. Like, what the heck is this? Who am I? And how do I make this work? And how do I get to peace and love? And out of fear and, con and conflict and fragmentation. I think we all live in the urgency of that, of that inquiry. And that's what I'm doing with you right now, is engaging in the urgency of the inquiry of this investigation. This isn't just, you know, we're not, we're not just passing the time thinking about interesting philosophical things. Uh, the world is burning. People are suffering. And I think, at least I'm called to the, called to the work this way, this seems important. This seems like it matters. And so one last piece of Buddhism to help us through this. I think the good, there, is a, there is good news here. And now, after you know, analyzing this and describing the problem, let's talk about the solution. We've, we've painted a vivid portrait of the cage. Now, where's the key that can unlock the cage? Okay, it comes from Buddhism also. And it's, you know, we're, we're not trapped ultimately, not, not in some ultimate sense. We, this is not irreparable, right? The, the, the potential exists for awakening, to use that Buddhist term. You know, the word Buddha means to awaken, to wake up. And so freedom is possible. Let's investigate that now. And I think to investigate that, we want to pull in one more Buddhist idea. It's a, it's a doozy. Uh, it's the Buddhist idea of dependent origination. I, I, I know it sounds a little, what? <laughs> dependent origination. Let me, let me um, frame it this way. The Buddha taught, as many philosophers do, that all forms, all rupa, yeah, all forms and all thoughts and all events are interdependent. Nothing is the cause of itself. Everything that exists is caused by other things. So this mug and this water did not make themselves. A person made this mug with some technological support. The water came about through natural processes and, and uh, gravity and other elemental forces and chemical realities. And nothing is the cause of itself. You know, this, this uh, piece of paper, is uh, made up of wood, right? A tree, and that tree is from a Douglas fir in Oregon or something that maybe somebody planted, maybe it was wild, and it grew and it used sunlight and in the, in the, the you know, it used the photons of sunlight and the chlorophyll of its own pine needles to turn 
the energy of that nearby star into its own energy, which it used to replicate its cells and grow into this big tree, which a lumberjack came along and cut down with a chainsaw that was driven by fossil fuel, by gasoline that was extracted from the ground, refined from petroleum oil made from, from long dead life forms from millions of years ago. And I'll stop there, I could go on all day, but you see that nothing it causes itself. Everything exists. So when I hold up a piece of paper, this is the sun, this is water, this is rain, this is human endeavor, this is petroleum refinement, and this is the road that goes from Oregon down to my house here in San Diego, I-5. And all the people that built that road and the Eisenhower administration who first envisioned interstate high highways and, and so on and so on. This is the this isn't a piece of paper. This is the entire universe taking the rupa, taking the form of a piece of paper. Guess what? Everything's like that. I did not cause myself. Sure, my mom and dad met and that sort of caused me, but every drop of water and speck of food I've eaten that came from the cosmic energies around me has informed my life, my consciousness, my body. We are all just sunlight in material form temporarily. So everything's impermanent and everything's interdependent, Buddha says, and everything's utterly reliant on each other for their existence. That's what dependent origination means. There is no us versus them. There's just us. We all arise concomitantly. We all arise together and in a state of mutual causation. That's why it's so difficult to solve political problems because nothing has one cause. In fact, Buddhism goes one step further than this by using a curious word to describe this. Buddhism says that all forms are empty. Now, empty doesn't mean there's nothing there. It just means empty of, of fixed concrete quality. All forms are temporary and are fleeting. All forms are like a cloud that takes shape in the sky for a while and kind of looks like a dachshund for a second there. And then it doesn't. And this goes, let me go full, full, uh, full circle here. This idea that all ideas and concepts are empty, all forms are empty. Let's bring that back to the five skandhas. I know, we work so hard to build the five skanda understanding. I'm going to pull the rug out from underneath you because guess what? The five skandhas, they are things. They don't exist independently of each other. They arise out of each other, as we saw. And in fact, and this is the part of the Buddhist teaching that most of you are probably familiar with, the cause of our suffering, the cause of our dukkha, are the five skandhas, having a body, having cravings. So let me give you another example of what Buddhism means by emptiness or shunyata. A whirlpool, a whirlpool. You know, let's say you're hiking along a beautiful river with, with your friend and, and you come to a, a place on the trail where the river turns a sharp corner and there's a place where the river is doing a whirlpool and sucking leaves down into it. And you say to your friend, hey, that is really cool. Look at that. Hey, help me pick it up. We're going to hike back to my truck, put it in my truck, take it home to my garden. I'm going to put it in my garden as a water feature. Look at my whirlpool. Well, obviously that's absurd, right? Why? Because a whirlpool is not a thing. 
It is something that the river is doing. It's an activity, not an object, right? All things are activities and not objects. All of this is going into our inquiry this morning about why is it so hard for me to remain in the wakefulness of unity. Because at the level of thought, I fall asleep into the dream of separateness. And one of the qualities of separateness is thinking, mistakenly, that I live in a world of disconnected objects, like whirlpool. When obviously that whirlpool has no existence apart from the river. It's not a thing, it's something the river is doing. And, and in fact, let me step back further. I shouldn't call it a river, I should call it a riverine. There are no nouns, there's just verbs. The whirlpooling is something that the riverine is doing, and the riverine is something that the streaming is doing, and the streaming is something that the raining is doing, and the raining is something that the clouding is doing, and the clouding is something that the oceaning is doing, and the oceaning is something that the riverine is doing. And when the river flows back into the ocean, what moment in that circle do you want to stop and say, that's the object, that's the essential nature? We live in a phenomenal universe, not a universe of objects. That's what Buddhism means by shunyata, or emptiness. And do you know what else is empty? All of this talk, all of these words, and, and Buddha cautioned us against turning all of this nifty philosophical investigation into hard and fast conceptual doctrines. Instead, stay loose, stay playful. The last thing we need are new doctrines to argue about. <laughs> and, and so all of this thinking is just the activity of that third skanda, you know, the, the conceptual thought skanda, the thought stream, as Eckhart Tolle called it and therefore is in a sense empty. You know, that say favorite Zen Buddhism story, famous Zen Buddhism story where the Buddha gathered his company together and he just held up a flower and didn't say a word. I was thinking about doing that this morning, just holding up a flower and staring into the camera for 20 minutes. I, I, I changed my mind, that didn't sound very effective. <laughs> so, that's why the Tao Te Ching, the Taoist Book of Wisdom by Lao Tzu, 5th century BC China, that's why the Tao Te Ching starts with that immortal line, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. We have concepts of things, but the concepts are not the thing. And that goes for all of these doctrines as well. So that's why meditation is so important. And that's why prayer is so important. Because in meditation and prayer, we go beyond the conceptual mind. We go beyond the five skandhas. We surrender our conceptual framework. We simply move into being, breathing, and awareness. We go beyond duality and into unity. You know, Rumi's feel, that wonderful passage from that Rumi poem, out beyond all thought of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. And when the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. So here in the field of time, 
of the five skandhas, seeing everything through this grid of my embodiment, my perception, my conception, my volition. The unity of the eternal truth breaks up into paradoxes. The same way that white light passing through a prism scatters into the visible spectrum of color. I think that's a nice analogy. When, when the unity of being passes through the prism of human understanding, it scatters into fragmentation. And none of this is God's fault. You know, if I could use the God word here. This is, you know, Maya is not the fault of Brahman in Hinduism. It's just what happens when you take oneness, the ineffable one, and sort of drag it down into the level of human experience, embodiment, consciousness, and understanding. It's nobody's fault. But we have an opportunity. You know, I was teaching a guided meditation session recently and a brand new meditator and this young woman was there and she's, and when we got done with the meditation, especially the silent part, she raised her hand. She was struggling to, she was struggling to describe the experience she just had. And she said, the only word I, I have that even comes close to what I just experienced is love. That's it. What an impoverished word. Boy, is that word stretched thin, right? We, we, we drag that word into all kinds of service. But it's kind of all we got. It's the only word for the nameless awareness of oneness. And when we drag that experience of oneness back up into surface consciousness out of our meditation, it filters to the five skandhas. We conceptualize it. We have to call it something, right? I mean, I guess we could just hold up a flower. But when we call it something, I guess the thing to call it is love. So our surface consciousness, our bodies, our perceptions, our feelings are the prism through which the oneness of the universe shatters and scatters into apparent fragmentation, the optical illusion of consciousness. But this is what I want to experiment with you in just a moment. We're going to start meditating here. In our deeper mystical awareness, beyond words, beyond thoughts, we see past fragmentations and feel in our bursting hearts the oneness that it all is, that we are. And sometimes even tears of recognition, the tears of homecoming come to our eyes. And we fall into one another's arms in forgiveness and in mercy in recognition, and in love. And that's what it means to realize oneness in a fragmented world. Now, let's meditate. I want to invite you, wherever you are, watching this on video or together with other people or on your own or in a church, I want to invite all of you, wherever you are, sitting down to, if you have anything in your hands, put it down and kind of scoot back in the chair, sit up straight, put, uncross your legs, put, put both feet on the floor. We're just going to sit here and become still. And I would invite you to just let your hands rest in your lap any old way. And let's take a nice deep breath in and out. And in and out. 
one more time in and out. And I invite you to lift the top of your head slightly toward the ceiling and let your shoulders drop as low as they'll go. And simply let all the tension and anxiety drain away from your body. Feel the tightness and tiredness and fear and grief and the sadness and worry. Feel it all draining away like water into sand. Let it move down through your muscles, through your torso, through your legs, and let it leave you out through the soles of your feet. Feel it pouring out of you through the soles of your feet into the floor, into the earth beneath this room, leaving you empty, clean, and free. And now I invite you to bring your mind's eye to your thoughts. Bring your attention to your thoughts. What Eckhart Tolle calls the thought stream will continue to flow. And I'll stop speaking here in a moment and we'll go into a few minutes of silence, two or three minutes. And when I do, your thought stream will accelerate and get louder. So I'll leave you with one last Suggestion, practice witnessing your thoughts as if they were clouds blowing across the sky. When you're lying on your back in a park on a beautiful day and watching clouds blow across the sky, when a new cloud appears on the horizon, you don't try to stop it. You don't try to hold it. You don't have an opinion about it. You simply watch. You observe, you become what Krishna calls the inner witness. So try that with your thoughts because thoughts are never going to stop. Meditation is not about controlling your thoughts. It's about moving into the perception of the inner witness. Watch your thoughts come and go, come and go without having an opinion about them. And so now we move into a few minutes of silence. Notice the sounds happening around you or perhaps coming through the video. Witness the sounds around you with that same disinterest. Let them come and go, neither resisting nor attaching to any of them.
out. You now to open your eyes and come back into the rupa, come back into your body. All the bring the air clear. Ah, thank you for joining me in that process, and I appreciate y'all so much. Thank you again for this invitation. My name's Peter Boland, and you can look me up on peterboland.com or go to my YouTube channel, Peter Boland TV, for more videos. Thank you all for spending some time with me this morning. Namaste.